Morning, Glory America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. It's Hugh Hewitt inside the Beltway, and that music means it's time for the last radio hour of the week on the Hugh Hewitt Show, which has been for many years now spent on the Hillsdale Dialogues, conversations with either Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu. All of our prior conversations are collected at Hugh for Hillsdale.com. And or one of his colleagues this week, we have both Dr. Arn and a new uh, guest for me, Professor Donald Westblade, who is very, very popular. I did my research on him last night, and he has great, great reviews. And it turns out he's been there longer than Dr. Arn, I think. Am I right about that, Professor Westblade? That's true. I've been here since 88. You know, I've known Dr. Mm-hmm. Arn since 1989, and I'm here to assure you, you can get through this, because uh, <laughs> it, I, I've, en- I've, endured, <laughs> I've endured a lot. So you, you, can, you can endure this, Professor Westblade. You hang in there. You can. Yeah. Love it. Neither, one, neither one of you is all the way through it yet. <laughs> That's true. Good to I know I I am loath to do this, but I have to. Doctor Arn has done a very good thing, and I have to praise him. He's written an imprimus this week. It arrived in my mailbox. And uh, before we go to the prophets, which was the subject of our attention with uh, Professor Westblade, would you explain to people what that is, Doctor Arn? What you wrote about? How you wrote that? Because I think it's very very timely. Uh, well, imprimus is our big publication. It goes to more than five million people. Uh, it's about the coronavirus and the reaction to it. And uh, I myself am uh, distraught over the way we're handling this. And I, I don't mean that I think that the lockdown is wrong. I can't be sure. I don't think anybody can. What I mean is that uh, the, the temper of the press and of the national conversation has much to do with just letting experts decide. And what that means is we can't govern ourselves, right? We, uh, and I make an argument in there. Uh, to be an expert is to focus, uh, and nobody can be an expert in very many things. I mean, there's a really great man at Chicago, University of Chicago, Leon Cass. He has a Ph.D. in microbiology, molecular biology, and he's got a Ph.D. in political philosophy. He's about the only person I know like that. And, and so experts have focus. But, of course, when problems are to be solved – there's really only one way to solve them, and that is common sense. Listening to the experts, sure enough. But what can they tell you? I mean, we're about to get unemployment rates greater than the Great Depression, and highest suicide rate in America in history was during the Great Depression. How do we know we're not killing more people than we're saving? And you can't settle that by expertise. And so I, I, I wish that the tone was like it's what I read in, about South Korea, I wish that they would uh, be working hard to give everyone the tools to fight this virus and go on with their lives at the same time. Do you know, and, Dr. Uh, Arn, uh, last night I rewatched Lincoln, Steven Spielberg's uh, 2012 <clears throat> presentation of Lincoln, and I thought the movie's finest quality is its portrayal of how one carries on in the middle of a great battle with ordinary lives and democratic debate over important subjects. And it came after I'd read your Imprimus column, and I thought to myself, I think I'll just watch some Civil War stuff because people can't go wrong with Lincoln in the middle of this thing. Yeah, yeah and, you know, name another great one, Churchill. Uh, I found yesterday, you know, there, there are blessings in this, down for one thing i'm at home all the time now and i never I'm it's not never a blessing home. for a penny but it's a blessing yeah but. yeah it's a big house there we wouldn't make it um if, if uh, uh i'm i discovered a quote from winston churchill that i'd never seen before 
yesterday. What? And he's right. He's writing to H.G. Wells, and they were sort of buddies. H.G. Wells was a socialist, and Churchill thought he was crazy about that. But he also loved his books and read them, studied them even. Anyway, he writes to Wells, and he says, "There's one thing I can't accept." He said, I can't expect this, uh, accept this vision of the future that experts will rule. That's actually impossible. And the reason is, what can they really know except just the narrow knowledge in their thing, whereas outside that knowledge, they're just exactly like the rest of us. And then he says, Doesn't, don't ordinary people who know what hurts and what doesn't have excellent tools of judging what to do? And well, you know what? That is prophetic, and that is yeah. also a transition to our conversation <laughs> with Professor Westblade about <laughs> profits. Uh, so you set that up very nicely, Dr. Arndt. You can retire <laughs> to the back room now. Uh, We've <laughs> done a very good introduction. <laughs> Professor Westblade, we are going to talk about the profits because Dr. Arndt and I have talked about Moses and King David, and then we figured out there's this subgroup of people in the Old Testament who are running around, the prophets. Apparently, you have devoted a lot of time to these people. I do a, quite a bit in my Old Testament class about the prophets. Well, would you set us up with a little introduction on, I mean, I got my outline here, courtesy of Mr. Brooks, and it's, I, I had never even considered the categories of prophets. You, you've got these guys down. You've sliced and diced them and arranged them on the shelves. <laughs> well, I do think there's a fairly common misunderstanding about the role of prophets, not so much that they don't understand what a prophet is, but they, there's a misleading um, set of emphases about prophets, and we think of them strictly as people who foretell the future, and that is one of their roles. But even more importantly, the, the role, just etymologically from the w meaning of the word prophet, is to speak for someone. Uh, so prophets are representatives of God, speaking for God. And secondarily, there's another sense of for in uh, for speaking, the meaning of the word, that is to speak confrontationally, to speak forth. And that's also one of their major roles. They're primarily speaking to the present, or else they wouldn't have very much value in their own time. So they're not just watching crystal balls. They are confronting crises in their own day. Uh, and you also divide them chronologically, not as to just roles, but there are three distinct chronological categories. Well, those three things that I was just talking about, the primary role of speaking for God is what they do immediately. Speaking forth is what they do in the present on behalf of God as a sort of secondary thing that they do. In representing God, they speak to the kings who are in turn leading the people, and it's their role to keep the kings in line. The kings have a relationship with God to maintain. They have a relationship with the people to maintain. And the prophets are really there on the sidelines to keep them in the proper place because it's so tempting. As we all know, Lord Acton has taught us this, that if you try to do things on your own and take power into your own hands, uh, corruption is likely to happen. The result of all that down the road, as a matter of foretelling, is going to be this tertiary sort of thing that they t tell the future, and they do so by sort of setting up the present as a model for the future. Type is the biblical word for that, but the past is a type of the future, and the prophets are therefore also addressing us when they speak to the kings. Now, Dr. Ern, it occurred to me in my notes on my outline here that you have had that speak forthrightly role a few times. Uh, our, our mutual friend, Karl Rove, is by no means a king, nor a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, neither are you. 
But you've had some pretty, I recall, candid conversations with, uh, with Carl about the wars and the adventures and the escapades that fall <laughs> befall empires. Am I not right that, that you, you have never hesitated to speak forthrightly to people with authority? Well, I, I, uh, it, it, Carl Rove is a particular case. He's a fine man. He's a friend. Wonderful guy. And he's, uh, you know, and I admire him very much. And uh, he did say to me one time, uh, you always come in here with a disagreement. And I said, uh, oh, this seems so. And he said, uh, you, don't, you don't seem to attack us in public. And I said, yeah, I like you better than the other guys. Um, no, he said, but I'm, that makes me unlike the prophets, by the way, who are always hammering the kings in public. But uh, no, I, I didn't think that it would be easy to make freedom in Iraq. And, uh, you know, that, I, I didn't even think that was a particularly difficult call. And, but I mean, but speaking I, forthrightly, that is something that a lot of people don't do around power. It, and I want in the next segment, I'm going to ask uh, uh, Professor Westblade to expand on that before we go through them in the long segment, the uh, individual profits. I, I, but you've never not been comfortable doing that. In fact, I, I think it's Rush Limbaugh who said he always likes when you visit him because he doesn't have to talk. Uh, that that is <laughs> that is actually tr- true in other circumstances, is it not? Did everybody notice that Don Westblade found that really funny? That was an episode of speaking truth to power. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, he, uh, you know, you can't get anything done uh, by being flattered. And, you know, we don't do that. around. We're friends around here. I don't. If somebody's hostile to me, I'm pretty tough and I can deal with that probably. But that's not the way it is. People, you know, you can look at their faces and tell them if they like the idea or not. And you have to watch and listen. Flattery is not part of the prophetic mission. When we return from our break, Professor Westplay is going to walk us through how prophets enact their own names, who they are, what they do, and how they counsel kings, along with Dr. Larry on all things Hillsdale. Collected at hillsdale.edu. Go sign up for this in Primus, this particular one. Try and get it. Go there today. You really need to read this. It's quite an amazing perspective. Hillsdale.edu. I'll be right back with Dr. Arm, Professor Westblade, right after this. Welcome back, America. Chew here at the Hillsdale Dialogue is underway with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. This week, joined by Professor Donald Westblade, who has been teaching for, well, my goodness, decades, since 1988, and his uh, at Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale, at Hillsdale.edu. His particular strength is the Old Testament. You are like my Presbyterian pastor friend, uh, Larry, uh, uh, Professor Westblade, you revel in the Old Testament, and you actually know what you're talking about, like Larry. And when I read the notes, how prophets enact their own names, I thought, we're just going to give you the floor to explain that. This is a short segment, four or five minutes. Just explain what you mean by that, because I, I was pretty taken aback by that. I never considered it. Well, most Hebrew students uh, will learn fairly quickly that the Hebrew people, in their language, love to play on words. They enjoyed a pun. Uh, when God speaks to David about the temple, he says, you're not going to build me a house by which he meant the temple. I'm going to build you a house by which he meant a dynasty. That kind of a play on words is everywhere throughout the Old Testament. And um, the prophet's names are one clear example of that. Think of Elijah on Mount Carmel having his battle with the prophets of Baal. 
uh, Elijah's name means Yahweh is my God, the Lord is my God. And that's the punchline of the whole episode on Mount Carmel. Uh, it's not Baal who is God, it is the Lord of Israel who is God. Um, Micah's name means who is like, and of course the implication is who is like God. And Micah 7:18, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and so on. His name is part of the punchline of his prophecy. Malachi means my messenger. And Malachi 3, behold, I send my messenger. His own name is put in there. Come to the major prophets. Isaiah's name means that the Lord will save. And at least three times throughout the book of Isaiah, we hear the punchline of the story, the Lord will save us, Isaiah's own name. Jeremiah is left behind in exile or in Jerusalem while the exiles go off to Babylon in his day. And he still has hope in the middle of a civilization that's falling apart all around him. And his name means the Lord will lift up. And his message in the middle of his book of comfort, Jeremiah 23, the Lord will raise up for David a righteous branch, even though it looks like the king is gone and that branch is dead. Uh, Ezekiel, who does go off into exile, thinks that at first all is lost. His name means God is strong, and he says early in his book, chapter 3, I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit, the hand of the Lord being strong upon me. So the strength of the Lord can be, in the short run, not so pleasant to experience. But Ezekiel finally uh, arrives at the same sort of hope that Jeremiah has, and they have a very strong message for both the people in Jerusalem who've been left behind and for the exiles who've gone away. Well, well, this theme is, is, I've had great teachers, Pastor Larry, I mentioned Pastor Scott, Pastor Mark, Pastor Mike, I've had great, great expositors of the Old Testament, but it never occurred to me that in just this, it's obviously evidence of divine construction to have the words so felicitously carry across the, the, the millennia and make such abundant sense. I mean, do you ever make that point? This just doesn't happen accidentally. Well, there's certainly providence that permeates the entire Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, people who with eyes to see can see God at work in their own circumstances, and the prophets, above all, with more revelatory information, see that more clearly. So people live up to their name. Adam's name means humanity. Uh, so throughout the Old Testament, people's names matter. And when Adam, say, names the animals, that's not just a matter of putting name tags on them. It's sort of a matter of giving them character and giving them purpose. So, Dr. Arndt, uh, it's a minute to the break. Why do you teach Old Testament at Hillsdale? I think it's a required course. Well, uh, that's up to God. Um, <laughs> it, it, is a required co- it is a required course, but it's a story, right? You know, I mean, it's amazing. Isn't it wonderful? If you look at the Bible, you know, from, from the end of it, from after Jesus, it is a tremendous reading of history with God's providence working to prepare. <laughs> Excuse me. With God's providence working to prepare the way for this Messiah. And so you're invited to understand all that. That's how Matthew begins. Well, I hope, by the way, that, that your sneeze is just the horrible Michigan allergies, which, of course, make the place uninhabitable and nothing else. We'll find out after the break. Don't go anywhere, America. Professor Westblade and Dr. Arn will be back as we talk about the role of prophets and kings. Important time coming up. Stay tuned. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. 
Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway 33 minutes after the hour, and we are, uh, as we do every Friday in the last radio hour, celebrating important things, talking about the profits today with Dr. Larry Arn, the president of Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale collected at hillsdale.edu, all of these dialogues back to 2013 at com, and Professor Donald Westblade, the Old Testament scholar who uh, has been teaching at Hillsdale since 1988. Uh, we're going to give him the floor in a second, but Dr. Arn, um, we are in the year of the plague. Boris Johnson has survived. That is a very good thing. We find, however, his recuperation obliges him to at least slow down, which must be very hard on him. And Dominic Robb has stepped up to act as this. I wonder if there is a predicate from the wartime for Winston Churchill and whether Anthony, was it Anthony Eden who stepped up when he had, I think he had a heart attack, but I don't know. Well, he had uh, pneumonia twice and a heart attack at least once. And, uh, You know, first of all, Churchill more commonly had to spell Anthony Eden, a much younger man than Eden Churchill. And the way it worked was, um, you know, uh, Churchill was sickest and for the longest in the Second World War when he was in North Africa uh, after a conference with Roosevelt. And uh, the people who invented antibiotics, at least for Britain, I think for the world, M and B, and their first their two doctors, and, and the antibodies were called back then M and B, and their names were something and Baker. They flew those two guys out. And so Churchill was doing the prime minister's work from afar, and he had a staff, and uh, he was very good at using them too. And the staff would, you know, uh, channel things differently because he was, he was weak. And that, you know, he was sick for three weeks, but he was working long days for all except about three days. Hmm. I suspect Boris Johnson is doing the same. Did, but when Probably. he was in this condition, did Eden speak for the government or did they, because of wartime, not reveal his weakness? <laughs> no, they had, uh, well, they had, uh, there's only one controversy about that. And that's late. Uh, but no, he... He, you, know, you have to remember, they're not. Uh, it's not like today, right? They're not. You know, the prime minister doesn't go on TV and give press briefings. No, you're right. All the time. He's not ubiquitous. And, His absence isn't necessarily missed. That's right. That's right. All right. Uh, now back, back to profits, Professor Westblade. Um, there is a role that you have outlined for me about how profits counsel kings. And I just want to give you the floor here for six or seven minutes to give people a taste of what this means and how it has been described in the Old Testament. Well, right. Profits, uh, remember, are not a institution that stretches throughout the entire history of Israel. They arrive about the same time that kings do. The first prophets that you can think of might be Nathan, perhaps Samuel, who's sort of a transitionary figure. But the prophets are inheriting a history that goes back to the conquest and the time of the judges. We have misperceptions of the judges, too. We probably think of black robes and powdered wigs and gavels, but that was not the judges that preceded the prophets. They were charismatic military leaders, and the prophets are partly an heir of that and partly an heir of the uh, people who would be on the sidelines of those battles during the conquest as sort of what today we might think of as cheerleaders. And the prophets are still doing that kind of antic stuff that you might expect from cheerleaders on the side of a battle. Mm. 
So the prophets have inherited a role, and they go to work at the time that the monarchy is instituted with Solomon, David and Solomon, Saul before him. I know you talked about kings a week or so ago, and yep. the kings are in a kind of a ambivalent relationship be, uh, with in between God and the people. And it's the prophet's role to keep them in the right relationship in between God and the people. Uh, one interesting place to see that ambivalence is in Solomon's prayer that is so famous, we hear him ask for wisdom. But the Hebrew actually doesn't say wisdom there. The Hebrew says Solomon wants to know good and evil. And oh. that's odd, because you think back to the Garden of Eden, and you think, why didn't God slap him down for asking for the knowledge of good and evil? Adam wasn't supposed to have it. But uh, in the relationship with the people, the, the knowledge of good and evil, back to the Garden, I don't think means to know the difference. They had to know the difference, or they couldn't be held responsible for eating from the tree. The knowledge of good and evil in the Hebrew idiom means a kind of moral independence from God. That's what they were supposed to stay away from. And Solomon, in his relationship with God, needs to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but in his relationship with the people, he needs to be able to tell them God's counsel about what good and evil are. There's a sort of objective truth about good and evil that is easy to forget when we, in our, I think postmodernism is sort of a nice expression of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, it's we can make up our own minds about what good and evil are, and the prophets are there to tell the kings, you can't do that on your own. You need to be in proper relationship with God before you tell the people what good and evil are. So a king who steps out of that relationship is going to do terrible mischief in his government. And that um, ambivalence about calling a king is present in the text of First Samuel when the people call for a king. You can look at a bunch of texts that tell you this is going to be a terrible thing that you're asking for. And you can also read a bunch of texts that says God's going to bless you well through having a king. And there are people who say, well, this is a source-critical problem. Some clumsy editor has put these together and not known what kind of contradictions he's making. I think that that ambivalence arises from the role of the king who needs to rely on God in leading the people. Uh, he needs to, the king needs to be somebody who works for the people the way that God has worked for him. Isaiah 64 tells us that this God of the Hebrews is a unique God who works for those who wait for him. And in every other story about God I know in every other culture, the reason why people are created is to work for God so they can take it easy. This turns out exactly 180 degrees around, and that tells us something about government today. Government is there to work for us, not us to work for government. Now, you have mentioned Isaiah, and I think your notes to me uh – portrayed Isaiah as a teller, a counselor to Ahaz in a way I had not focused on before. And I think it's useful for the, for people who would be prophets or counselors to kings. This is very useful. Yes. Ahaz in um, the eighth century is um, counseling King Ahaz, who is now stuck between a rock and a hard place. Here come the Assyrians, the biggest war machine that history has put together up to that point, And it's on its way to Jerusalem. It's got to get through Syria and Lebanon on the way. And Syria and Lebanon and the northern kingdom get together and say, united we may stand, and we better have Judah with us. And they come to Ahaz and say, join our alliance, or we will attack you first. So poor Ahaz, he's going to be damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. He's got to figure out what to do. And Isaiah comes to him and says, don't join this alliance. It's going down, and you will go down with it which at first makes sense, but 
the alternative is little Judah is going to be stuck there having to face the Assyrians all by itself and not with the help of Syria and Ephraim. And that's exactly what Isaiah counsels Ahaz to do. You plus God are better than you plus the Northern Alliance. And he gives him a sign in the middle of that, which is very important in the New Testament. It's the sign of Emmanuel. There's a young woman who will conceive and bear a son, and by the time that son can eat solid food, that king of Assyria is going to overrun that alliance, so don't join it. And we wonder, well, how can that then apply to the Messiah of the New Testament? If Isaiah has given Ahaz 500, 700 more years of time, Ahaz probably ought to take that bargain and say, uh, I'll wait for that Messiah to come. But... Isaiah is talking about his own son, as the next chapter, chapter 8, makes clear. This kid named Ahershel al-Hashbaz, of all names, yeah, is spell that. his own son. And by the time that son is born, the king of Assyria is showing up. It's coming that fast. And if it doesn't come that fast, his political counsel doesn't make much sense. But there's a typological thing going on here. I think if you asked Ahaz, could God bring an even greater fulfillment of this prophecy that you're looking at a year or two from now, off in the future, I think Isaiah would shrug his shoulders and say, sure, that's how God works. So, so let, me, let me ask you about, again, prophets and kings. That's a very elaborate one. Hezekiah was the good king. Every Sunday school kid knows that. Hezekiah did he have a prophet? Yeah, and good king. Did they have good prophets? Did they listen to him? Is that the, the theme, that if you find the right counselor, listen to them? Yes, uh, Hezekiah was uh, running Jerusalem a little bit later on um, in 701, so 20 years after the Assyrians attack uh, Samaria, the Assyrians are arriving at the door of Jerusalem, and it's still Isaiah and Amos and Hosea talking to Hezekiah saying, prepare for this. One of the things he does is to finish the construction on that tunnel that you can still walk through in Jerusalem. And you can still see the inscription, the Siloam inscription in Istanbul that commemorates the joining of that tunnel. That allowed them to withstand the siege for long enough time for God to intervene and for the army to go away. So Hezekiah gets a pretty good grade from the prophets. Nobody gets an A, but Hezekiah gets a B plus from the prophets for being pretty faithful to trusting God rather than trusting political and material sources for his help. But you know, doc, Dr. Oren, we got a minute to the break. It does seem to me, though, that the key here is you got to pick your prophets carefully if you're a ruler. You've got to pick your counselors very, very carefully, or you're going to end up with yeah. magicians and sorcerers. Well, you know, think about the ones about Elijah, who might be the greatest of the prophets. Uh, they, the, the kings hated him. <laughs> they tried to kill him, and uh, he predicted their doom, and it was right. So you're right. Get, getting on the wrong side of the right prophet is fatal. <laughs> That's well put. <laughs> getting on the wrong side of the right prophet is fatal. Uh, you might want to write that down, Professor. That you probably he probably took it from you. Am I right? Uh, you probably took it. Wonderful story about Micaiah ben Imla, a prophet who. Uh, it, no, the king knows he's going to prophesy the way he doesn't like, and he wants to listen to his rubber stamp prophets. And there's a nice story about reverse psychology in which Micaiah ben Imla tells him one thing, and the uh, king responds in the way that he, in the opposite way, and it turns out to be exactly what the prophet wants. So there's a good Oh, my gosh. Need. All right, we come back from break. We're going to talk about 
how profits function and whether or not they actually are as apocalyptic as, as one thinks they are, because there's a lot of apocalyptic literature about the profit. It, it's, it's useful to think about how you pick your advisors. I, I just would call up Hillsdale and ask Aaron to dispatch a few here and there. Uh, don't go anywhere, America. I'll be right back with the Hillsdale Dialogue. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. I'm laughing because during the break, I talked with my guest, Dr. Arn and, and Professor Westblade of Hillsdale. And uh, we're about to hear Professor Westblade explain to us the apocalyptic role in apocalyptic literature of the prophets. And just before we came back on, Dr. Arn told me it's going to be six inches of snow at Hillsdale College today on April 17th in the year of the plague, 2020. And I believe that is an apocalyptic kind of thing, uh, Professor Westblade. Is it not when you all of a sudden get the unexpected elements arriving in their uh, in in unexpected times and places? <laughs> that is a sort of apocalyptic expression. I guess you could say so. This word apocalyptic is easily misunderstood too. People associate it with the end of the age. It's really, as you're saying, more of an interruption of time, not necessarily the end of time. It's a crisis time, and that's where the prophets do most of their work. So, but in a crisis, you can't usually talk very plainly about politics. If you, you know, speak up against the president or the governor now, if you spoke up against the king in those days, soldiers might show up in the middle of the night and take your family away. So it wasn't always safe to speak in the middle of crisis. And so what we do today is to use political cartoons, and instead of talking about Republicans, you put an elephant up there. And the prophets did the similar sort of a thing to maintain a kind of plausible deniability of what they're saying so that they could speak plainly for those who have ears to hear and still have a kind of deniability when the officials come to check up on what they're saying. So again, now we are we are blessed in America not to fear anything we say. I mean, we really do not have any fear of that. But in wartime Britain, people did live in fear of crossing the censor's line, did they not, Doctor Arn? Uh, you mean live in fear of the government? Yeah, for well, if they if they breached the censorship rules. Well, did Lord Mosley go to jail, for example? Yeah, they did, but that was, and you know, he was in contact with Hitler, right? And so right. that was that was very mild, but it was real. That's right. And Lincoln Again, threw a few editors in jail, which was, you know, uh, very extraordinary for American history. But they weren't prophets; they were secessionists. That's right, and uh, you know, he's and uh, see in in a free country. Leaders are very reluctant to do that. It's one of the glories of Winston Churchill. There was this thing called Rule 18B, and somebody suspected of, of, of uh, consorting with the enemy could be detained without a trial. And uh, in 1943, when it became plain who was going to win the war, and that was in the early autumn of that year, still much fighting left to do, Churchill went to the House of Commons and, and moved the repeal of Rule 18B. And there was a storm, unpatriotic, and he stood up against it and he got it revealed. He got it repealed. So let, let me close Professor Westplate by talking about Gomer, because I'll be penalized by my listeners if I don't. What role Gomer? Gomer is the wife of Hosea, but she has come out of a life of prostitution. And Hosea is called, as many prophets are, to a very unlikely act to dramatize something for the people by marrying this whore. 
And in fact, after they marry, she doesn't really change her ways. She's out selling herself on the street. In fact, worse than that, she's paying people to take her on the streets. And Jose is still going to go out and, as it said, ransom her from the marketplace where she's selling herself. So that's a nice picture of who Israel is. That's a nice picture of who most of us are with our fallen hearts, who are uh, living with other lovers instead of living with God. And Hosea is a picture of God still coming to find us. So the prophetic action there is action, not words. It's both action and words, but uh, words are not without actions in most of the cases of the prophets. Uh, and so when our takeaway from this, uh, most people do not study the Old Testament. Most people do not, when they open the Old Testament, read the prophets. What's your suggestion about that, Professor? Well, there are parts of the prophets that we do read. I have a nice little graph I like to show my students of the parts of, uh, you know, the book like Micah that everybody does read and doesn't. And there's one little blip in the middle that everybody does. So there's a favorite verse that we have in our prophets. I would recommend branching out from there and asking, what's that favorite verse doing in the context of this prophet and his history? And of reading the prophets in a kind of chronological timeline over against uh, world events, because that's what they're addressing. And to read them apart from that is to lead to a lot of misunderstanding. Yeah, what would the Lord God require of you? I will go and do that. Dr. Arn, last word to you. I hope you never stop teaching uh, Scripture at Hillsdale. I doubt that it will. Probably not. And also, about your thing about freedom of speech, here's a blog post I just received in the email from Professor Paul Ray, one of our colleagues, entitled, The Wicked Witch of the Midwest. It seems to be about the the governor of Michigan. (laughs) Everyone knew that. You didn't have to say that. Uh, My goodness, she needs a prophet or two, doesn't she? Can you, uh, (laughs) Professor Westblake, can you get over to Lansing today in the snowstorm? Because honestly, she's got to ease up. Uh, this is this is not a good look. She was for about a week. She's the shortest lived mentioned possible vice president candidate ever in terms of uh, the ability to make it on the ticket. If she was ever on a list, she's off of it at the end of this week. Uh, Professor Westblade, thank you. Dr. Larry Arn, thank you. The Hillsdale Dialogues are all collected at you for Hillsdale.com. All things Hillsdale and Hillsdale.edu. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Generalissimo. Continue